It's Thursday, November 1st, and this is The Daily Dive. We're five days away now from the midterm elections. Finally. It seems like we're on our way to split control of Congress and the Senate. The GOP is set to retain the Senate, and Democrats might flip control of the House. But hey, you never know. Shannon Vavra, reporter for Axios, joins us to talk about the midterms. It's all about voter turnout while the president is on his blitz of rallies. Next, that Big Mac and Coke now comes with a side of inflation. U.S. companies are raising prices on everything from plane tickets to paint to your favorite fast food. They are passing on higher costs for fuel, metal, and labor costs after years of low inflation. Annie Gasparro, food reporter for The Wall Street Journal, joins us to talk about why prices are going up and why you might not mind it or even notice. Finally, a gruesome end to notorious Boston crime boss and snitch, Whitey Bulger. Within hours of being moved to a high-security federal prison in West Virginia, he was killed, beaten to death, and his eyes gouged out. Reports say he was beaten so badly he was unrecognizable. The top suspect in his prison killing, another mafia hitman. My producer Miranda joins us for all the gory details. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I think we're doing well with the House. We're going to have to see. It's a lot of people. I've campaigned for a lot of candidates that were down a little bit. Now they're up. Uh, But we're going to see. I think we're going to do well in the House. I think we're doing really extraordinarily well in the Senate. Joining us now is Shannon Vavra, reporter for Axios. The midterm elections are five days away. There's a lot of pressure going on. People do expect the split to go as planned. The House will go to the Democrats and the, uh, the Republicans will maintain control of the Senate. What are we hearing? What do we know about this? Well, what's interesting about that is in the last couple of days, that has not necessarily been a surefire thing anymore. We know that we had the expectation that Dems had this blue wave coming in with all of this surging enthusiasm, but following Brett Kavanaugh's testimony, there was a surge that almost erased entirely that blue wave locked in and and allowed Republicans to feel more enthusiastic about voting, which made a lot of more tight races even tighter and gave Republicans a lot of hope. But Democrats who had become nervous about that are no longer nervous. That's what we're hearing at Axios. This voter enthusiasm, it's tough to pin down who's going to turn out, when they're going to turn out. They're saying millennial voters, as engaged as they are, might not turn out the same way. So what are the top concerns for Republicans right now? Top Republican operatives are telling Axios they're worried that their party is probably going to pay a price for a lot of the violence, the political violence that has been happening in the last few weeks. I'm talking about the pipe bomb, the anti-Semitic murders uh, in Squirrel Hill in Pittsburgh. And a lot of Republicans are worried that because some of those have been linked to Trump and, and a lot of Democrats are saying Trump's rhetoric has driven this or at least allowed it to perpetuate or maintain it, the vitriol around this country, that they're worried that Republicans are going to be a little bit turned off from voting for Republicans this time around next week. And that's super important, especially because of that flip that we had earlier in in this past month with Brett Kavanaugh uh, providing that surge. And so I think Republicans are feeling a little deflated at this point. Especially with Caesar Sayoc, who was the pipe bomb mailer, that one could be tied more directly to the climate right now in our politics. And a lot of people are throwing blame at the president for talking so much crap about different politicians and the media and things like that and creating this climate. So that one I can see where, you know, it might matter at the polls. And you guys had an interesting note in, in some of your reporting that, you know, red state voters see the president as leading the nation through these crises, but suburban voters do blame him for this tone. 
political rhetoric in this country at this time is it's veering away from just placing blame on Trump like everybody has become a machine of political vitriol and spin. And so it's kind of a question of can everybody tone it down and focus on the issues? What about the Democrats? What are they worried about? For them, it's all about turnout. For them, it's all about turnout. We know that in recent polling, more Democrats than in 2014 in the last midterms are saying they're enthusiastic about coming out to vote. I believe that number's in the 70% zone right now. And that was closer to 47%, 46% in 2014. But there's another increase, and that's along with in the GOP side of things. So the Republicans are also enthusiastic about voting this year higher than in 2014. So it really just depends on day of and and where that rolls out on the day of. But I think you mentioned this earlier is millennials are classically apathetic, right. even though they talk online and they tweet and they're posting on Facebook all the time. But I think the latest polling there shows that millennials are only going to turn out in the 20, 25% zone. So not, not super enthusiastic there for what would be likely a Democratic vote. There was a new poll from NBC uh, Jen Forward that said that 31 percent of them definitely will vote, but then a whole slew of them will not. And I just saw a funny write up. They said 7 percent of respondents said voting is too basic to even bother. So, <laughs> I mean, I don't know what it is about them not getting engaged enough, but yeah, it doesn't seem like they might turn out in the numbers expected. But Democrats say, you know, a, a low turnout benefits them, a high turnout will benefit them. If it's just kind of this average turnout, that's where GOP shines because uh, they have those constant voters that always come out. Right. And that's why this year is particularly nerve wracking for Democrats, even though there has been this sort of lock in with the blue wave is it's a midterm election. Right. Not only do you have Democrats who are typically slow to vote or lazier to vote at this point, but it's also a midterm election where the percentages just are dropping compared to what it would be in a presidential election year. That said, a lot still favors Democrats at this point, right? We've got Republicans retiring in massive waves. Democrats have a huge cash advantage, and there's a debate about whether that actually matters since a lot of cash, for instance, in Texas is coming from outside of the local jurisdiction where voters will actually turn out on the day of, but there, is a, there are a lot of positives still for Democrats at this point. As you mentioned, immigration is going to be a big issue. Healthcare continues to be a big issue in a lot of different races across the country. And the president is on this blitz right now of rallies. He has something scheduled all the way up until the day before the midterms and uh, sometimes two rallies in a day. He's going to be all over the country. He's going to be in Missouri, West Virginia, Indiana. He's going to be everywhere, constantly getting the message out. Trump has plans to hit the trail. I think it's 11 rallies in in six days yeah, total. Yeah, exactly. Just about six or five days before the election in eight states, I think it is. So he's doing that blitz, but so is Vice President Pence, who will join him in a couple of states as well. And our understanding in Axios is that he is working more towards flipping seats in the Senate and more local races whereas Trump may be focusing more on kind of house races where things are a little bit more vulnerable. But, but that said, a lot of the rallies up until this point have been focused in areas where in 2016 they went to, the states went to Trump, not where Hillary Clinton right. won. So they're not necessarily entirely competitive. And it's funny because the president said, you know, I'm not on the ballot and it's not my fault if Republicans lose, but man, is mm -hmm. he trying really, really hard. But that's his job. You know, it's obviously he's supposed to be getting out there and getting more wins for Republicans. So only a few days away. It's going to be interesting to see how this last stretch shakes out. Shannon Vavra, reporter for Axios, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.
in some of these cases, it's not even just the food ingredients that are more expensive, but it's also the packaging. The cost of plastic and cardboard have risen. So you can face an issue as a company where you're not only paying for the labor, which is going up, and the ingredients which are going up, but then also how it's delivered to the consumer. Joining us now is Annie Gasparo, food reporter for The Wall Street Journal. It's a tricky time right now for the U.S. economy. Unemployment is at the lowest point in decades. Economic growth is strong. But U.S. companies are raising prices on everything from plane tickets to paint. They're passing on a lot of higher costs that they are incurring for fuel, metal imports, food, and everything's being passed on to the customers. What do we know what's about what's going on? For a long time, companies, whether it be the airlines or companies that make groceries, they were hesitant to pass on higher costs to consumers because they felt like consumers would stop buying their products. Well, now that the economy has improved, we've seen in the past week or so several big companies like Coke and Steve Madden and Kellogg all talk about how now they've been able to pass along those higher costs more than they were earlier this year. And that will is expected to continue in 2019. And that will mark the most inflationary period we've seen since the recession. There's this kind of ripple effect that happens with um, the costs that these manufacturers incur. Like, uh, let's say for airlines, uh, for instance, They're paying about 40% more in jet fuel than a year ago. Trucking costs are up, things like that. And all of that gets passed along. So Oreo and cookie makers and things like that, they'll increase their prices. Similarly with the airlines, they can also get creative and add more fees that help to cover the higher fuel costs. And they can try to encourage more people to do uh, business class flights, upsell them to a, a more premium experience. That way they don't have to just flat out raise prices, but they can do it in a more subtle way. And that's what we're seeing a lot of. And then uh, you also do have companies like Clorox that are saying that they are just raising prices outright. And that has been more well-received by the grocery stores currently than it was earlier this year, given that economic growth. And a lot of this does have to do with the tariffs that have been enacted by the administration. Manufacturers are paying roughly 8% more for aluminum right now, 38% more for steel than they did a year ago. There's also these $200 billion worth of taxes on goods from China. And this all weighs on these businesses that buy those imports. Another area, in addition to tariffs, is trucking. There's massive shortage in labor in the trucking industry. And there's also been some changes in regulation over the past year that have created spikes in the cost of shipping goods. So that's another big area where you're seeing a lot of consumer products get inflated. And basically, companies are saying that enough is enough. They've been just eating it and letting their profit margins suffer, and they just can't do that any longer. But at the same time, these companies are feeling okay with raising the prices. As I said, demand hasn't dropped and they're sensing that consumers are getting used to paying these higher prices right now. Right. Many of them expect to continue raising their prices slightly in 2019 and and going out talking to grocery shoppers and people that are remodeling their homes or or buying bigger items. An increase that is maybe one or two percent is often unnoticed by the average consumer. So that's been helpful. But as as it extends, like in some of the restaurants, to a 6%, 8%, or in the case of Apple, a 20% increase, then that's going to be felt by people. 
Yeah, you mentioned the restaurants. Uh, I know a lot of these restaurants are growing, uh, experiencing growth periods, but it's not being driven by more people. It's uh, They're being driven by price hikes. And you guys had a, a great little graphic in your article there talking about, <laughs> we've done the stories about how people eat fast food every day, every other day, and it's kind of a problem almost. But those prices are increasing. McDonald's Big Mac has gone up 4.7%, a change from last year, and there's a few other ones too. The Starbucks Grande 16-ounce coffee is up almost 9%. That one is pretty outrageous because Starbucks coffee is not the cheapest. (laughs) And if it's going up 9%, (laughs) that's kind of crazy. Right. And in some of these cases, it's not even just the food ingredients that are more expensive, but it's also the packaging. The cost of plastic and cardboard have risen. So you can face an issue as a company where you're not only paying for the labor, which is going up and the ingredients which are going up, but then also how it's delivered to the consumer. Yeah, your Chipotle steak burritos up four and a half percent. Your Domino's large ultimate pepperoni pizzas up almost six percent. The lowest one that went up was the Panda Express orange chicken, which I kind of love. So good that one. It's a good thing that one didn't go up in, uh, that much. While the percent increase is very high, the actual dollars and cents, like for the Starbucks coffee, it could just be that it went up a quarter. So it might not be deterring people because right. if somebody's in a habit of buying something, whether it be a Big Mac or a Domino's pizza, if the cost goes up by a matter of sense, they might not feel that difference. Or might not even notice it. Yeah, it's that slow slow incremental creep right there. Annie Gasparro, food reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. He was beaten brutally with a lock in a sock, and then a shiv was used to gouge his eyes out. And there was also an attempt to cut out his tongue. There was a lot of blood in Bulger's mouth. Joining me now is my producer, Miranda, for this crazy story of Whitey Bulger. He was a a South Boston Irish mob boss. He had just been transferred to the U.S. penitentiary Hazleton. And within hours, he was killed. So it's a crazy story. and We'll get into some of the details that we've learned. But first, let's start off just a quick little bit of background. Who was Whitey Bulger? Have you ever seen the movie The Departed? Yes. It's okay. a very good movie. Yeah, one of my favorites. Well, you know the Jack Nicholson character that is based on Whitey Bulger. He's a mafia boss who was also an FBI informant, and he would supply information on what was going on with the New England Mafia, which was his gang's main rival, when the FBI, all they wanted to do was bring down the Italian Mafia. Right. So he was a big, big help with that. At some point, he was tipped off that he was going to get indicted himself. He was going to get busted for participating in gang activities. He fled and he moved around, ultimately landing in Santa Monica, California, where he was captured in 2011, then convicted in 2013 in 11 murders and a long list of other crimes. And he was sentenced to life behind bars. And like you said, Oscar, he had just arrived to this new prison on Monday. And within like two to three hours, he had been murdered by the other inmates. So that leads to all the new questions. Why was he moved to this prison in the first place? He was a frail 89-year-old man. He was a snitch, a known snitch for the for the FBI why was he placed in general population instead of more protective housing little by little this all the details have been coming out and it looks like he was killed because it was a mob hit like they wanted revenge for putting all sorts of guys in jail and being this snitch So now what do we know about how he was killed in his cell? Well, there are a couple of things, and I'll get into the gruesome details in a second. But I do want to get into one of the reasons why he got moved to this prison in the first place, because seemingly everything was going fine at his last prison. There's two theories. 
and there may be one of them might be a conspiracy, is that the feds wanted to get rid of Whitey Bulger. They moved him there on purpose because they knew that there were a couple of dudes in there who would happily take him out. And the excuse to leave was because he was accused to be having a improper relationship with a female psychologist at his most previous prison. Yeah, so he was causing problems. And uh, not only did the mob want to get rid of him, but I guess prison officials wanted to get rid of him. The FBI wanted him gone. Everybody wanted him gone. So... He got taken out and he did not get taken out nicely, Oscar. According to the New York Times, there were four men who participated in this severe beating, two of whom were seen wheeling Whitey Boulder in his wheelchair because he couldn't walk. They wheeled him into a corner of his cell at about 6 a.m. Monday morning into a corner that was obstructed by camera. So nobody could see what happened. But when they did find him, they determined that he was beaten brutally with a lock in a sock. And then a shiv was used to gouge his eyes out. And there was also an attempt to cut out his tongue. There was a lot of blood in Bulger's mouth. They don't know if the tongue was actually removed, but they say that this is pretty typical hit style murders for rats. Eyes gouged out so you don't see and tongue cut out so you can't talk. Yeah. And they so there is cameras on the cell, apparently. And that's they saw the men wheel him in there to get out to get out of the vision of the cameras. Right. The actual beating and murder was not caught on camera, as reports say so far. But I mean, man, you know exactly what happened. So they have some suspects. One of them is a known mob hitman. His name is Freddie Geese. He's 51 years old, and he and his brother were sentenced to life in prison back in 2011 for their roles in several violent crimes, including the murder of a guy called Adolfo Big Al Bruno, and he was a Genovese crime family, so the Italian mafia guy that got killed. These two brothers, the Geese brothers, were Greek, so they weren't allowed to be like made men in the Italian mafia. It's the same scene from Goodfellas and why Ray Liotta's character can't be a made man. It's so crazy. So it's like the it's like the movies, but they were still enforcers for them. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. This plays out. This is like the final scene in the Whitey Bulger story. Now, I'll you know? watch that. You know, Black Mass with Johnny Depp was terrible, but I will watch whatever they make about this one. <laughs> and they said that there are a couple of reasons why Freddie Geese would want to kill Whitey Bulger, primarily because Freddie hated rats, but also Freddie hated guys who abused women. Right. And Whitey Bulger was a a rat. But he also was a man who abused and killed women. So it's very simple. All these questions just arise. Like, he's such a high-profile guy, a known rat, ties to all the mob families and things like that. And he's going to be a target for life. Why would they put him in there? Also, he's disabled. He's not able to defend himself. He's confined to a wheelchair. They said he could stand up, but he wasn't able to walk. Apparently, he damaged his hip in the last two years of his incarceration in in solitary confinement. He was continuously falling off of the bed and re-injuring his hip. He was... Nearly a 90-year-old man. Yeah. Old police commissioners and old investigators and guys that kind of know this mob culture very well, they're like, I don't understand how this guy could have been left alone for this. It seems like they let it happen. Within hours of arriving, he was killed, like as if these hitmen knew he was coming. When it was 6 a.m., Oscar, how many of... I don't I'm not familiar with prison culture, but how oh, you've never been. <laughs> I've never been to a men's prison. How common is it for at 6 a.m. guards to not be around and yeah. inmates to be allowed to freely move about in the cell halls? I just I don't understand. Yeah. Well, there it is. The end to James Whitey Bulger. I'm sure we'll hear some more details as the investigation continues. Thank you, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, 
and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.